Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel and entertainment journalist. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. On today's episode, I'm so excited to be joined by the wildlife cameraman Gavin Thurston. Gavin is a multi-BAFTA and Emmy winner, and over the last 37 years, he has worked on some of the most famous nature documentaries ever made, like Planet Earth and Blue Planet, most often working alongside Sir David Attenborough. Normally, Gavin spends most of the year traveling, and he has covered every corner of the globe, its deserts, polar ice caps, and its deepest sea. I'm sure you'll agree he is a fantastic raconteur and so this had to be a feature-length long-haul episode. We talk about his incredibly close shave while filming Gorillas in the Congo, what it's like to be the very first person to see and film previously undiscovered new species of wildlife, the terrifying time his submersible failed at 1,000 meters deep below sea level, and what it's like spending so much time working with the legend that is Sir David Attenborough. All that and much more coming up on The Travel Diaries. Gavin Thurston, welcome to The Travel Diaries. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you very much for asking me. Um, Now, I looked down the list of your previous guests, and even if I'm at the bottom of that list, I'm extremely flattered that you've uh, wanted to spend the time chatting to me today. I have been so excited about this, like we've been discussing. I have so much that I am excited to ask you about, so no, it's really my pleasure. And I've caught you in a rare moment when you're actually here in the UK, because how much of the year are you normally in normal circumstances travelling? Uh, well, I've been doing this job a long time as a wildlife cameraman, um, and I think over the last 28 years I've been freelance. I've been out of the country for probably seven to eight months every year. Wow. Um, and this is the longest, well, because of this wretched COVID, uh, it's the longest I've been home probably in the last 37 years. Um, I've actually quite liked it, actually. <laughs> but you were one of the few that actually did then manage to get away and have a recording stint somewhere far flung. Yes, I mean, dotted through last year, I had, I think, 10 days work between January and the end of October. Mm. Um, And then I was fortunate enough to get away on a um, a shoot that was planned to Tanzania. Um, Tanzania has got slightly, well, they claim not to have any COVID, but of course, that's nonsense. But uh, um, uh, they've got less strict travel rules. um, So they let us Brits in. Uh, So I was away for seven weeks filming there. Must have felt nice to have a little bit of normality from a career perspective there. Um, absolutely. I mean, otherwise, I'm self-unemployed, I think is the term. <laughs> Just sitting at home, twiddling my feeling. thumbs. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, God, it was great. I was out there in, um, in Tanzania, you know, amongst lions and hyenas. I can't say too much about the project, but um, no, it was great to get a bit of sunshine and see some open space and something different from my back garden. So I was very fortunate. So we're going to take a journey through your life's travel diaries and you've traveled so extensively so there's so much to cover but let's start first at the very beginning that's chapter one which is your earliest childhood travel memory. Um, 
Growing up, my parents got divorced when I was about two, uh, but my mum was quite adventurous and she used to take me and my sister off on um, on camping trips. Uh, so I think some of my earliest memories were travelling in the UK, um, aged, I suppose, about seven, eight, nine, um, putting up tents in places like Durdle Door and, I don't know, down on the Devon coast. Um, mm-hmm. So my earliest memories are actually travelling in this country and living out of a, a tiny little mini, uh, we had a, my mum had a mini countryman estate, and she was very clever at packing. Um, it's probably a skill I've partly inherited. Yes. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that game Tetris, where you try and fit all the blocks together. Uh, yeah. Well, that was my mum with uh, packing up the back of that mini. You know, for three of us with a tent and camping stuff, the cooking gear, food, sleeping bags, you name it. And that actually, those early skills, uh, well, those early memories and those early skills I learnt. Um, have stemmed me in good steed through my career since, you know, putting up tents and packing cars and, and travelling. And did a passion for photography come first or a passion for wildlife? At what stage did this career unfold for you? I suppose one thing that I find interesting is some people know what their passion is from an early age. So quite a lot of people in my industry will say, God, I've always loved wildlife. I always loved travel. You know, I always knew I wanted to be a wildlife cameraman, camerawoman or producer or whatever. Mm. Uh, whereas for me, I don't think I ever had a clear cut vision of where I wanted to be. The trigger for my passion for photography um, started when I was about nine. And I went on a school trip and we went up to Dudley Zoo uh, up near Birmingham. I don't know if it's still there. Uh, and my kind Auntie Mary lent me her box brownie camera uh, to take photographs on the day. And for those of you who don't know, for the listeners who don't know, Box Brownie was a film camera. Of course, they're rare nowadays. Um, it was literally box-shaped. It would fit neatly in your hands. It would take a roll of film that would take 12 pictures. It was very, very basic. You just had a waist-level viewfinder, um, lens on the front, and literally all you did is point it at the thing you wanted to photograph and push the button on the side. There was no aperture or exposure or focus or anything to do. That was all fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I went up uh, for the day at the zoo took a whole load of pictures, came back. And back in those days, you'd have to drop the film off at Boots, the chemist or wherever to get it processed. Um, And, you know, you'd go back 10 days, two weeks later and pick up your prints from the chemist. And after that day, I remember telling my mum, saying, God, it was amazing. We had a great day at the zoo and we saw elephants and giraffe and this, that and the other. And I said, but one thing, we saw this giant fish in a, you know, swimming pool leaping out of the water, touching its nose on a beach ball held by a keeper. And um, so when we went to pick up the pictures... I rummaged through them and the first photo was, I don't know, I think my feet out of focus on the doorstep or something. (laughs) Um, The next few photographs were some distant elephant and giraffe and stuff. But about the fourth or fifth photograph on the roll was this orca almost completely out of the water, touching its nose on a a beach ball held up by a keeper. And I showed it to my mum. I said, see, there it is. There's that giant fish I told you about. And I think looking back now... It was that moment. And if you were sat with me now, I could show you that same photograph. I can, it was taken in 1972. Mm. And I can show you that split second moment when that orca was almost completely out of the water. And it was then that I realised the, the power of photography. Um, and it was interesting. The subject was something natural history. Well, unnatural because mm-hmm. it was in a swimming pool. And we mm. know now that orca should not be in captivity. And that thankfully is changing. But it was only later in life that looking back that I realised that was probably a pivotal moment that steered my whole career um, and the passion for photography. And clearly you were a natural because fast forward not too many years and you were flying around the world filming some of the most memorable nature documentaries alongside uh, Sir David Attenborough. And is he a good traveller? David is the 
he's the he's the best travel companion you could wish for really i mean i've i've never worked with michael palin so i don't know about him but um david is uh you know i say he's the best travel partner he's he's never in a bad mood uh, he's got no airs or graces he's got no demands um you know if you're in a land rover he'll travel in the land rover if you're sleeping in a tent he'll sleep in the tent he's super knowledgeable so if you're driving along and you see an amazing rock formation you can say oh, look, those rocks look nice. What are those? And then David will be able to give you an encyclopedic description of how old the rocks were, when they were laid oh. down and what the folds were and so on. Oh, amazing. Um, and uh, obviously his knowledge of the natural world, of wildlife and plants and all the rest of it is is superb. I say, if you were, on a, if you were going to be a, in a pub quiz, if those ever exist again, um, you'd certainly want Sir David on your team because he's <laughs> so knowledgeable and, and, and just good fun. Amazing. Well, chapter two then is the first place that you fell in love with. Where would that be? Uh, Congo in Central Africa. Um, This is the Republic of Congo, not uh, DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I think the reason I fell in love with it is, you know, we've all heard of the Congo and we all know about Livingstone and Speak and those early explorers and the horrors that they they suffered when they were first exploring there, trying to discover the the source of the Nile or the, the Congo River and things. Um, you know, many of them have died because of disease or being hunted by natives or attacked by animals and so on. So yeah. for me, there was a real sense of adventure when you mentioned the word Congo. Yeah. So when I finally got to go there, and I think it was 1999, I was actually quite nervous. I mean, I said yes to the job, but at getting, you know, even beforehand, I was nervous. I remember my granny telling me all those early sto- horror stories. And um, mm. so when we finally arrived there, it is still a wild place. It's amazing. I imagine the journey to get there in itself is is an adventure. Yeah, I mean, the, yes, you're absolutely right. And I'm talking about a specific part of uh, the Republic of Congo. It's a, a national park um, called the Nuabali and Doki National Park, um, where I've spent oh many, many months. Back in the day when I first went there, it took us six days to get to location. Six days. Wow. Yeah. So that was Bristol to London, London to Paris. Paris to um, Libreville, then a charter flight from Libreville to Wesso, and then Wesso. Then you get, then it gets more intrepid. You, you know, you travel along dirt streets and you get in a big dugout canoe with an outboard motor on it, and then you start chudging up the um, Ndoki River, and that's when you start to feel like those early explorers, you know, because mm. you are travelling through thick jungle, and you're seeing animals on the banks, and you're seeing monkeys swing through the trees, and you know, tropical birds flying overhead like hornbills and things. And finally, you arrive at the steps of um, the WCS uh, research place at Bamasa, which is the base for our expedition further into the forest. And it was amazing. I don't know if you've seen the film um, Apocalypse Now. Not for many years. But there's that moment in Apocalypse Now when they arrive at um, Colonel Kurtz's camp and there's all these people stood there at dusk and they're holding flaming torches and... They, they climb up these, I think it's concrete steps, up to these people. And arriving at Bamasa at dusk was just like that. At the top of the steps, you had these dark figures holding up lanterns. And it just felt so intrepid. Um, and from there on, it just gets better and better. The next day, you then get in a smaller dugout canoe, which you pa- call a pirogue, which you paddle and punt a bit like a, an Oxford punt mm-hmm. up these narrower um, streams again through thicker and thicker jungle and now you're starting to see, see signs of elephant and buffalo and so on, footprints and piles of dung and the insect mass is starting to build, things buzzing around and biting you um, and from there 
you then get onto the the path and it's it's by you travel by foot and you follow the elephant paths through the the forest for another six hours or so to the camp mm. and there you are literally treading over piles of fresh elephant dung and you're seeing flickers of birds flying through the trees and you're getting all the smells of the forest and you're hearing the cicadas and you've you know you break into a sweat and suddenly you know this is just like it would have been well to my, in my mind 200 years ago those early explorers and you yeah. really feel like you're discovering something for the first time and so for me the northern the forests of northern congo and central africa are still intrepid and you still you know even today you can still feel like an explorer and you still feel your your knife life is on a a knife edge in terms of what you might bump into so for me um if anybody gets the chance to travel in the future i can highly recommend going to that part of the world if you're feeling intrepid and you want mm-hmm. an adventure it, it's an amazing place and congo is the first place that you fell in love with is there a particular animal that when filming really first captivated your imagination or one that particularly surprised you um yes and i think this is probably why i'm i'm so fond of the congo and central africa is that particular first trip back in 1999 was to go and film western lowland gorillas um and obviously i'd seen gorillas in zoos but I'd never seen them in the wild before. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, West, uh, and I didn't know at the time, but Western lowland gorillas are the most uh, numerous of all the gorillas. I think, I don't know what the latest figures are, maybe around 100,000 or so in the wild. So the first time I saw those gorillas in the wild and started to film them um, was hugely exciting. And um, I'm, I'm not a scientist. I didn't go to university. I didn't study biology or zoology or behavior or anything. So everything I've learned about bushcraft and animal behavior has been from scientists and, and uh, fellow peers in the industry uh, through my career. Um, but the nice thing about working with something like gorillas is they're so similar to us in so many ways yeah. that you or I can read behavior into them you can predict you can kind of predict what they're going to do you can you can predict whether they're angry or happy or you know just from facial expressions or body posture and so for me that was quite engaging whereas if you look at something like a a herd of wildebeest they all look identical mm. uh, you can't really tell if they're in a bad mood or not unless they're <laughs> charging at you which yeah. is unlikely um but something like a gorilla we can all read something into a primate um so for me i think gorillas are right at the top of the list uh, in terms of animals to go and film and spend time with. Uh, yeah, I think we have a lot of things in common with gorillas and there's a lot of things we could learn from their animal societies, uh, their, their lifestyle, I suppose. And I did um, read that you once had quite a frightening encounter with a gorilla. It sounds like you had so many wonderful interactions with them, but I, I guess from time to time, they are unpredictable wild animals. Yeah, I mean, I think generally wild animals are not out to do humans harm. Um, they will generally only attack if threatened um, or persecuted or cornered or whatever. Um, so this one example, it wasn't a malicious attack. Uh, so basically, again, Congo. So I was filming uh, the Western Lona gorillas and uh, we'd set up a hide on the edge of a bai. And a bai is a open Martian clear- uh, marshy clearing in the forest. Uh, this particular bai was about... I don't know, three or 400 metres long by about 60 metres wide. And basically because it's marshy, there's no trees and you get different vegetation. So you get water lilies and, you know, reeds and so on. Any of the gorillas like to come and feed on those lilies and reeds. 
and they'll pull up the reeds like a stick of celery and chew off that white base, you know, the mm-hmm. wash them, pull off that white base bit and crunch it up. So it's a very good place to film the family as a whole because you generally see the whole family, whereas in the forest you might only see a few individuals at a time. Uh, so we set up this hide, sat in it for days and days and days and got glimpses of gorillas. Anyway, eventually one day a family of gorillas came in about 120 metres away, directly in line with the hide, which was great, and they started to come in and feed. And I think there was about 16 or 17 in the group, including a big silverback. And this was really exciting, having spent all that time waiting. So finally I was getting these amazing images of gorillas feeding and the babies playing and the mothers suckling the babies and all sorts of things. And slowly this group of gorillas, the family gorillas, worked their way towards the hide. And they were just ambling, getting closer and closer. And I was picking off the various shots. And um, eventually they got so close that one of them caught a, a glimpse of the, the reflection in the lens, a female. And she barked. She did this alarm bark at me. And so I froze. And I was thinking, shit. Um, anyway, so I kept the camera really still. And eventually when all the heads were down again, I moved the camera and picked off a few more shots. And then another female saw the lens and barked again. Now the silverback was looking interested, thinking, you know, what's that in the forest, you know, going to attack my family? Uh. So this is 200 kilos of silverback. He's a big protective dad. He's going to protect his family. Anyway, slowly, the so I stopped filming. I locked the camera off. Um, so slowly, some of the gorillas drifted into the forest and worked their way behind the hide, and I could hear them moving through the foliage. And the others drifted down towards the hide, and eventually the silverback sat about... I don't know, 20 or 30 feet from the hide, and he sat with his back slightly to the hide. And by now, my heart was racing, and I was thinking, shit, 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 just just move on, just move yeah. on, which is not what you'd expect from a wildlife cameraman. You'd yeah. think I'd be excited, but I was actually really nervous. Um, now, one of the things with filming with uh, uh, gorillas is they teach you that if you're on a path and you meet gorillas on a path when you're walking, there's a certain behaviour you can do, and that is... You don't want to threaten the gorillas because you're going to get beaten up. So what you do is just drop down on one knee, pick a leaf and just pretend to eat. Don't look at the gorillas. Don't look them in the eye. And just you can make this low submissive call, a sort of just a calming call, which is a (coughs) this low grunt, which is like a contact call the gorillas do. Right. So that's if you that's if you meet a gorilla. So you can show just from body language, you're not being threatening. You're just sitting down. You just happen to have bumped into a family gorillas. However, there's no protocol that if you're hiding in a hide in a a fake bush um, and a gorilla sees you, what the hell do you do? You can't, it can't see you. So you can't shut your eyes and turn away slightly or drop on one knee because it can't see you. Anyway, so this is going through my mind. Um, Also, to complicate matters, I'd been reading a book in the hide called Gorillas in the Mist. Um, uh, by um, Diane Fossey (laughs) and in that book just because I thought it was topical to read it whilst filming gorillas uh, but in that book she describes how difficult it was to get researchers to come and work with her and stay there because when you get charged by a 200 kilo silverback um, some of these some of these um, researchers would literally shit themselves it is so frightening to have an animal come charging at you and stop inches from your face yeah um that it, I mean, it's truly frightening. Um, so she was explaining that in a book, and it just refreshed my memory about how frightening these can be. Um, how and precarious the other thing she, the situation you were in. Yeah. And the other thing in this book, uh, she describes that over her time there, she found something like, I don't know, 
I can't remember now, 70 skulls of different gorillas, mostly females. And of those skulls, most of them had puncture wounds in the skull. And she reckoned this was from where silverbacks had, the, you know, the males had grabbed the females to discipline them. But, um, and obviously punctured their skull with their teeth. Oh and um, I don't know if you've been in a, a museum and seen a gorilla skull, but it's about, I don't know, a centimetre thick. Enormous. And if you see a human skull... It's a bit like an eggshell by comparison. Yeah. So all this was racing through my head with these the silverbacks sat so close to the hide. I was thinking, shit, if he just leaps on the hide and bites me, I'm my head's going to burst like a ping pong ball. I mean, I'm toast. Anyway, thankfully, he eventually got up and he walked past the hide and carried on down the by. And I was thinking, God, thank God for that. Anyway, as he got further from the hide, I thought, oh, that's quite a nice shot, actually. So I very carefully picked up the Cameron tripod in the hide and I was just turning it round to poke it out through the other hole of the hide, and he stopped, and his back foot was just hovering off the ground, and he was think you could see he was thinking, and he looked back over his shoulder at the hide, and he started walking straight back to the hide, and I was just thinking, oh, no, 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 and he got closer and closer, and he, I just cowered down in the hide, and literally my heart was beating like crazy, I could barely breathe, and um, I was really, really frightening, frightened. He came right up to the hide and I saw his shadow on the hide. And the next thing, he just whacked the hide with his hand. It hit me across the back, knocked me to the ground, oh. knocked me off this little stool. And now I was cowering under the tripod thinking, shit, this is it. This is it. And I could see his shadow hovering by the hide. I was just waiting for 200 kilos of silverback just to pummel me to a pulp. I tried to make this low appeasement, this low <clears throat> noise. Yeah. And I just went... Like this, made this tiny whimper. I was just so frightened. Anyway, he just walked off, and he probably thought he probably thought all along. He's probably thinking, "What is that strange bush?" He came over, whacked it, gave an exploratory whack. He heard this mouse inside, and then just walked off. Um, (laughs) But I was left badly bruised for several days across my kidneys. Oh gosh, what an experience! Looking back, it's fine, but at the time, I was absolutely shit scared. To be honest, absolutely shit scared. And is that something that is that a risk that you are constantly weighing up as a wildlife cameraman? How how much danger? Not danger, but how close to get? I suppose, and how much to push it because you then wanted that last shot because it's just so tempting when he was walking away. Yeah. Um, so are you constantly in analysing risk in that respect? Um. Yeah, I suppose you are. I mean, I've, 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 I've been bitten by one snake, and that was actually holding one in captivity. I've never been bitten by a single animal in my whole career of thirty-seven years. And that's pretty uh, amazing. I've been bitten by lots of ticks and had blood sucked by leeches and mosquitoes and God knows what else. But um, I've never been actively attacked or bitten uh, by any animal other than that slap from a gorilla. Um, so maybe I'm good at assessing risk, or maybe I've been very lucky. Mm. Um, but I think overall, I, as I say, I, I don't think animals are malicious. I don't think they're out just to beat the shit out of you or, or bite you for the hell of it. Um, I think they would only do it in defense as a last resort. Um, whereas humans are very different. Humans are malicious and humans can be cruel and humans will torture other humans. And so humans are a very different beast, Mm. uh, but generally across the animal kingdom, I think most animals are, they're not out for trouble. They're not out to just beat you up for no reason. Yeah. Um, but yeah, going back, sorry, I'm waffling on, but um, That's fascinating. I suppose the whole time you are assessing risk, you know, how close should you walk to an elephant 
or a rhino or a lion or whatever it might be. To be honest, um, most of the time what you're trying to do is you're trying to film natural behaviour. And as soon as an animal knows you're there, unless it's an animal used to, say, tourist vehicles or something, that behaviour will change and it will either... Well, generally, the animals run away because they've been so persecuted by man. So generally, you're trying not to be spotted and you're trying not to get close. Mm. Um, and that means actually generally not taking a risk. Because if you get seen, then you'll probably blow the behaviour you're trying to film. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on the genre of television. There are types of TV where people presenters want to run up and grab things. Um, that's not the kind of TV I'm interested in, to be honest. Um, you know, man conquering everything. And if you take somebody like Steve Irwin, he did amazing good for conservation and a, an awareness and instilling a passion about wildlife in, in so many of his viewers. But for me, it was kind of the wrong message or a mixed message because it was always about man conquering animals. Mm. Um, you know, it doesn't mm -hmm. matter how venomous or dangerous he could grab it. And it's a shame because for me, that that ultimately is the wrong message. We should be living side by side with wildlife and not conquering it all. Mm. Um yeah, very good But that's point. a different genre of TV. Yeah. Well, so moving on to chapter three then, that is the place where you learnt the most about yourself. Where would that be? Oh, blimey. Um, probably I've been in a few tricky situations. And when you're tested, uh, beyond the gorilla situation, uh, <laughs> when you're tested, you find out who you really are. Um and I suppose one of those situations was um, I worked on a series called Blue Planet 2 and I was fortunate enough to to film um, pretty much all of Programme 2, which was about the deep. Uh, so I got to spend hours and hours and hours and hours, uh, more than 500 hours in a submersible that can go to a thousand metres under the ocean. Um, <sighs> and it was it was amazing. Well, first of all, I wondered whether, you know, I, of course, when I was offered the job, I agreed and leapt at the chance. You know, I'd never been in a submersible before. But actually, when it came down to getting into it, uh, the first shoot was off the, the west coast of Australia, off the Barrier Reef. And it took us about two days chugging out on the on the ship, the Aleutia, to get out to the, uh, um, you know, the place where we were going to dive. To even get um, out there, two days. Yeah, even get out there. And on that whole journey, of course, the sub team were building the sub and adjusting lights and fitting the cameras and charging the batteries and air tanks and so on and of course being a newbie i wasn't allowed anywhere near any of that stuff yeah. but it gave me two days of thinking and looking at this sub and it's basically a sphere which is about six foot diameter it's nine inch thick acrylic uh, so a perspex sphere in a kind of a metal frame um and it's got a, a hatch you get into at the top only six foot yeah and there's three of us in there oh, uh, for up to 10 hours at a time um, you've got life support for, for 10 hours. And during those two days, I was thinking, bloody hell, what happens if we get all the way out there and I get into that sub and they close that lid and I freak out? Yeah, and that's the first thing I, realized, I was thinking. I was yeah, thinking well, like I, that would give me a panic attack <laughs> for sure, the pressure. Well, exactly. I had two days to think about that. Uh, you know, yeah. I was committed to doing the shoot now. And I thought, God, this is going to be so embarrassing if I'm just sat on the deck for three weeks because I can't sit in that sub. Um, thankfully, when we finally dived uh, in it, I got in it, shut the door. Well, not me, but uh, they shut the hatch. We got wheeled to the back of the ship and we got lowered into the water. Um, it's so peaceful once you're underwater. It's suddenly, you know, you're away from all the noise of the ship, suddenly there's silence and you start to sink down through the water past all these amazing creatures. And for me, I never, never panicked once. I never had 
any thoughts of claustrophobia or, you know, because once you're in there, you can't get out until you get out of the, you know, until the sub's brought out the water. And how long does um, it take to get down to the point where you're ta- filming as well? Um, obviously, you see stuff on the way down and you see stuff mid-water. You see amazing, you know, squid and marlin and octopus and krill. And, you know, I mean, there's there's so many things you see down there that I have no idea what they are, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but it takes you about an hour. So the, the, the bottom limit for that particular craft is a thousand meters so a kilometer down and it takes you about an hour to drift down to that level and on the journey down obviously as you as you leave the surface um the light starts to fade for a start once you get to about 10 meters um pretty much all the red light is filtered out so you're in this blue world and as you sink further as you get towards 200 meters it starts to get dark and at 300 meters even on a bright sunny day to our eyes it's dark Obviously, there's creatures down there which can see in that darkness, uh, but to our eyes, it, it's dark at 300 metres. And then, obviously, you put the submersible lights on and then you sink further, uh, but you're sinking then through, you know, effectively black water. Um, and eventually you get to the bottom, or, you know, if, you, if you're diving where the, the sea bottom is at 1,000 metres, and then you go into a whole different world. It is like being on a different planet. Yeah. And every dive we went on, you know, it would either be myself the producer and the sub-pilot, or sometimes the producer would swap out for a, a scientist to sit in the passenger seat. And um, on some of the dives with the producer and the sub-pilot, we'd see these weird things. We kept seeing the same things. So next time we went down with a, um, a scientist, I'd say, oh, you see that thing there? I said, well, what is that? And the scientist would peer out of the, the submersible at this weird creature. And what was really heartening is he would say, I have no bloody idea. And there would be things we would see on dives where the scientists had no idea what they were. They would say, it might be one of these or might be one of those, but I've never seen anything like it. So there was a real sense of adventure and exploration. The fact that we were seeing species probably nobody's ever seen before or described before. Yeah, and then filming Um, them for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, and and actually, still ninety five percent of the ocean is still unexplored. I was going to ask you. So, how much do you think is still out there how many new species are there out there do you think deep in those dark depths that we've never seen before um i think there'll be tens of thousands of new species wow so yeah so forget going to mars if you want if you're a young explorer and you want to have adventure and discover something uh forget all that effort of getting into into space Hmm. um just literally go a kilometer underwater it sounds easy, I know, but go kilometre underwater and you will see things nobody's ever seen before that you'll be able to describe and there'll be behaviours you've never seen before. They're particularly weird as well. I remember that series and some of those deep sea creatures are really, really odd and captivating to look at. Yeah, I mean, I reckon, I was trying to describe it to somebody, I, I reckon if you took all the Disney animators and you gave them LSD and told them to draw weird (laughs) deep-sea creatures, they would not come up with some of the creations you see for real down there. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK. And in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Going back to your original question about where did I find out more about myself, on one of the expeditions we were off the Costa Rica coast and we were there to film Yeti crabs. And these are crabs which were only discovered, I think, in 2006 or 2009. And they're called Yeti crabs or Hoff crabs after... Um, uh, David Hasselhoff with his hairy chest. Really? Um, yeah, because they've got really hairy claws, you know, really hairy claws. Yeah. And what they do is they live on methane seeps at the bottom of the ocean. And there's very little that, that grows at a methane seep apart from algae. So what these crabs have evolved to do is they've got all these hairs on the arms, on their, I could say arms, on their claws. And what they do is they hold their claws in the stream of methane bubbles coming out of the ocean floor and they wave them around and they farm the algae on their on the hairs on their claws, and then mm. they bring the claw in and you know munch all the um, the algae off their claws. So that's what we were there to film. Um, so it was a three day shoot. So we chugged off the coast, got in submersible, went down to a thousand meters. We got straight onto the same methane seep that was discovered in two thousand nine, two thousand six, and whenever it was, um, and we got on filming. Now, when we dive in the submersibles, we have two submersibles. So you always have one as a backup. Um, so if we say to get caught in, I don't know, deep sea fishing net or something, the other submersible would be able to snip us out with its manipulator and, and rescue us. Um, so we dive down with two submersibles. And the other good thing about having two submersibles as a cameraman is you can use the other one as a very expensive, elaborate lighting stand. So you can <laughs> position that, you know, to backlight these crabs. So you see the, you know, the light through the hairs on their arm, on their claws. Um, anyway, a few hours into the dive, the other submersible had an issue, a technical issue, so had to return to the ship. Um, but it was deemed safe for us to stay down, get the job done, and then return to the ship. So we were down for about seven or eight hours, I think, in this tiny submersible, and um, getting amazing footage of these crabs. And eventually, you know, we pushed it. 
um, because we heard that the weather was coming in for the next few days. So there was little chance of us being able to dive again the next day or the day after. So we had to try and get a complete sequence in that one dive. So we kind of pushed you know, pushed it to the limit of what we could do in terms of staying down there. Anyway, if over the last hour or so, normally what you do is you call up to the ship and say, you know, um, I can't remember the call sign now, but you say, this is Nadir, uh, you know, SO, SO, this is Nadir. So to the surface officer, just mm-hmm. to say, we're alive, we're okay. And you would give them the readout of your CO2 and your battery levels and so on, just to show that you're compass mentis and everything's fine. Yeah. Anyway, about an hour before the end of the, the dive, we lost comms with the ship. Anyway, we thought, well, that's right. So basically the, the pilot would just call in every half an hour and just say, here's an update, CO2, you know, rising, but still okay. We're just going to finish filming, then we're going to return. Anyway, so finally we thought, right, okay, we've got to go back up to the surface. Um, and I was looking across at the, the um, screen and I could see the CO2 level had now gone to orange. So it was oh, kind of telling goodness. us we've got to get up. So he called to the surface, permission to surface, of course, no reply because we couldn't hear the ship. Anyway, so I started stowing the cameras and and packing stuff down in the sub. I looked over my shoulder and the, the pilot was kind of behaving erratically. And I thought, I said, is everything all right? And he said, uh, well, no, nothing's working. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, none of the valves are working. So normally there's two valves you turn to the front and then there's another two valves you open. That blows the tank, uh, fills it up with air, and then you float to the surface. Mm-hmm. And I could see the CO2 was rising. So I said to him... Um, you know, having been a diver for many years, I realise you can get uh, like narcosis or you can get weird effects if the if the air you're breathing isn't normal air. Right. Yeah. Um, so I said, uh, what do you normally do then? And he said, yeah, switch these two to the front, these two to the top, and that would blow the tank. And that's exactly what we'd been taught to do if he was incapacitated. I said, okay, if that doesn't work, what do you do? And he says, well, I turn to the other side and these auxiliary tanks, you turn those two and blow those two, but nothing's happening. And I could see a, a, just a hint of panic in his eyes, uh, which, of course, is infectious. And then I looked to um, Will, the assistant producer, and he, too, was very wide-eyed and slightly ashen white. And I said, OK, if those don't work, what do you do? And um, anyway, he tried calling to the surface again, nothing. And I said, OK, why don't you switch off? The whole thing runs on a Windows tablet, believe it or not. I <laughs> said, why don't you switch that off and switch it on again? You know, <laughs> that typical switch IT off solution. and switch it on again. <laughs> yeah. So he switched it off, rebooted it. Still nothing. He did it again, switched it off, rebooted it, nothing. And then I heard him say the fateful words on the radio, X-ray, X-ray, X-ray. And basically as soon as I heard him say X-ray, I thought, shit, this is it. I felt, literally I felt sick to my stomach. And I didn't think I was going to die down there because the other sub could have come down and rescue us. Um, And there's lots of safety backups beyond that initial thing. But the fact that he called X-ray, X-ray, X-ray... Is X-ray like Mayday? Yeah, Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. It's a a clearer... On some of those radios, it's clearer to say X-ray because you've got diction to it. Um, I looked up to um, Will. Now he was ashen white and wide-eyed and clearly... Uh, not comfortable he'd heard that either and I was thinking shit 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 and I knew that basically every time they dive in those subs uh, they will also know where the nearest rescue sub is so we were about a three-day sail from San Diego and that's where another one of the rescue subs is so basically what they could have done if we're in real trouble they can radio uh, they can call San Diego and say please send a rescue sub so all I knew the worst that was going to happen is we were going to be stuck on the bottom in the dark uh, without you know, much food for up to four days. So four days is the maximum you can survive in those submersibles. But submersibles, you know, four of three of you 
sat in that six foot sphere for four days would not be a fun experience. Just waiting for lights to appear out of the gloom for somebody to rescue. Anyway, after switching off, switching on again, um, eventually everything just came on and worked fine. And um, he was able to blow the tanks. Yeah. And eventually we we were slightly stuck in the mud. Um, So we rocked the sub inside, you know, like if you get a car stuck, we were all rocking side to side. And eventually we freed from the bottom um, and we made it back to the, the ship okay. But it was interesting how I've never been in that situation that slowly evolved, where you could slowly see a disaster unfolding. Um, and it's interesting to see how I reacted, that I was actually, although I felt pretty scared, I was actually kind of quite calm about it and was able to think it through clearly. Um yeah. And I knew ultimately I had that belief that we would solve it. You know, if we didn't get it fixed, we had the other sub that could rescue us and we had a rescue sub in San Diego if needed. And of course, it never came to any of that. It just turned out, actually, uh, it was an IT thing that, of course, we had our iPhones uh, with us in the uh, in the sub just for taking happy snaps and things. And it turned out that what was happening is our iPhones were connecting on the onto the submarine uh, submersible Wi-Fi and it was blocking the it was blocking yeah it was blocking it from connecting to the hatch switch to tell the computer that the hatch was closed um which is why so after that we learned uh put your uh, leave your phones on the boat (laughs) well put it in airplane mode (laughs) wow what an experience well moving on to chapter four that is your all-time favorite destination now this is going to be hard because i know that you've been is it over 80 countries that you've visited over the years yes and um saying i've been to over 80 countries used to be kind of a badge of honor uh but now with climate change it's almost a shameful admission um admittedly it's been filming wildlife and um hopefully stories which will empower and passion you know viewers to to care more about the natural world but i say it's no longer a badge of honor to say over 80 countries it's a tricky one isn't it because i I know exactly what you mean. And of course, we're being so much more mindful of that now more than ever. And then, you know, working in the travel industry and with one in 10 people working in it and how much they're struggling and suffering because of COVID, it also means that I want people to travel again as soon as they are able to. So it's this really hard kind of balance to strike in terms of how is best to travel. It is. I mean, my whole career has been based on travelling around the globe. As I've been to the North Pole and South Pole and most places in between. And, um, you know, and I, I love the adventure of it. But as I say, it comes with, um, you know, I mean, it's, there's a responsibility now. Now we know the damage we're doing to the planet. There's a responsibility to know that if you are going to travel, do it in a environmentally as possible way. Um try and offset your carbon i mean i do a lot of tree planting now well not a lot but um i whenever i see acorns i'll pick them up and um plant them in pots and i'm hoping that by planting those little oak trees um that ultimately over the next few hundred years will offset the carbon that i've produced you know in my travels um so there are ways to do it and also hopefully in the future we'll have you know more efficient cruise ships or electric planes or you know, there will be ways of reducing, you know, allowing us still to travel without the same impact, hopefully. Yeah. But yes, your question, favourite place in the world. Um, well, I think my three favourite places, um, one I've already mentioned is Congo. Uh, mm-hmm. Second is Sumatra. And the third is Alaska. And oh. I'll explain why. The th- those, those three places have something in common. And that is 
they're all wild, still wild, wild places. So, for instance, if uh, let's take Alaska, because that's probably the most accessible. Uh, you may have heard of Katmai National Park in Alaska. There's a little part just north on the northeast side of Katmai National Park called Hallow Bay. And I've been fortunate enough to spend many, many months there filming the brown bears, uh, mm. grizzly bears there, coastal brown bears. How wonderful. Um, you know, doing what they do, hunting salmon and things. And what's really nice about that part of the world is you're doing everything on foot. It's not like going on safari in Kenya where you sit in a, a jeep and get driven around all these things. Uh, you're on foot, you're up close and personal with these big charismatic animals. And, uh, you know, these bears will, again they're not out to harm you. They're not out to kill you and eat you. Um, they're out to catch salmon and do what they normally do. And if you behave in the right way and you go with, the, you know, with guides who are sensitive to that, uh, it's perfectly safe and uh, to sit at the edge of a river, you know, 20 foot back from the edge of a river and have these 800 kilo animals hunting within six or eight feet of you, mm. chasing after salmon up and down. And that... Um, that's kind of how it should be, really, us living side by side with animals rather than displacing them or, or scaring them off or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah so ca- that particular corner of Katmai National Park, Hallow Bay. What's the landscape um, like there? How does it look? Um, so you've got, obviously, you've got the coast on one side. You've got the Shelikov Straits, which I believe are one of the most dangerous stre- uh, stretches of water in the world. You get, you know, ripping currents. You get freezing cold temperatures. Um, and then as you come inland, you've got these amazing sort of sandy beaches, uh, dark, uh, like a volcanic sand, because that whole area is volcanic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's usually littered with driftwood, you know, giant washed up trees from the timber industry, which have been weathered by storms and so on. Then you've got kind of tussock grass. And then shortly behind that, um, the land starts to rise up to mountains. Um, and those mountains have got snow on for most of the year. The snow disappears for a couple of months in the in the summer. Um, so it's a really rugged landscape. Mm. And then you've got these rivers that go in inland, um, which is what the salmon swim up um, every year for their um, spawning ritual. Yeah. And that's what brings so much wildlife in. Uh, so the bears come for those two or three months of the year when the salmon are running, because that's when they get most of their feed. Uh, you'll get wolves hunting alongside the bear, again, chasing salmon or picking up the scraps. Uh, you'll get foxes. I think in one day I saw... In terms of seeing charismatic animal, animals on foot up close, uh, we saw coastal brown bears, wolves, elk, moose, uh, beavers. There's a beaver dam just inland that you can walk up to and you can get very close to the beavers. And they'll, you know, eye level, if you stand below the dam, they'll swim close and come and slap their tails at you. Uh, then you get rafts of hundreds of sea otters off the coast. They're all sort of floating on their backs, eating their, you know, their the clams or whatever it is they're eating um uh bald eagles flying overhead it's it's kind of like a a north american eden really where you've got all these animals living side by side but as humans you're able to be in amongst them without them all being you know scared and running away if you behave in the right way so it is a it's a magical place to go if you love the wild places and you love the wild animals that's uh, you know hallow bay or katmai national park in alaska Oh, sounds glorious. Firmly added to my travel bucket list. <laughs> Excellent. And how about Sumatra? Why do you love that so much? Sumatra, again, it's an intrepid place to visit. Uh, you've still got wild bits of forest, not as much as there should be. Um, but if you go up to Kerinci Sablat, uh, there's an active volcano there. Uh, you've got, you know, 
hot springs. Uh, you've got rugged, uh, intrepid rivers to cross with rope bridges and things. But again, the key thing there, the prize for me, is you've got this charismatic wildlife. So you've got uh, Sumatran tiger. I mean, I think there's only about three or 500 of those left in the wild. And you were the first person to capture one of them on film? Yeah, absolutely. They'd been captured on stills camera traps before, um, but nobody had captured them on video. And we were able to do that for a series called uh, Deep Jungle. So we spent four weeks out there setting camera traps um, and, you know, just filming conventionally. Uh, yes, yeah, so you have Sumatran tiger. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got clouded leopard. You've got bears. Uh, uh, a whole host of primates, gibbons and all sorts. Um, yeah, I mean, and all this is your you're on foot you're up close and personal you're walking the animal trails you're seeing footprints you're seeing the scat uh you're smelling all the wildlife you can you know there's a whole host of birds and things it's it's just a again a, a wildlife haven really um although you know it is shrinking but it is a wildlife haven um an intrepid place to visit You've mentioned many times in the chat about the environments that you're filming in and visiting shrinking and this is obviously something that is highlighted in a life on our planet um which i rewatched again last night it's a netflix documentary that came out during the first lockdown did it uh yes it it was due to launch at the royal albert hall in april last year um and of course that was delayed which is a real shame um Mm. but it got then launched i think in august so yes it's on netflix david attenborough life on our planet an incredible look at the monumental scale of humanity's impact on on nature and at the end, we see these two scenarios play out, don't we, where um, there's one that's incredibly harrowing and bleak, one of an increased population of uh, increased temperatures and natural disasters and habitats being devastated. And then on the other, there's a more hopeful possibility, one of rewilding of the wilderness and positive changes that are being made by countries. You show Costa Rica as an example of a country that is making a a tangible difference. So kind of from from your experience, these films obviously I I know take a, a, a while to put together and make. So now at this stage here in 2021, where are we at? Which countries are leading the way with this? Um who can we take example from? Uh, as you say, Costa Rica is probably a prime example where they've just set aside a large portion of the country to be national parks, uh, so sanctuaries for wildlife. And it's paying dividends because, um, admittedly, in the tropics, nature bounces back quickly, uh, mm-hmm. quicker perhaps than um, you know the northern or southern extremes. Um, but what's interesting is a, a lot of Costa Rica's economy is based on tourism. You know, people are coming to see the amazing wildlife they've got and the amazing habitats they've got. So you might think it's kind of wasted land if you're not growing crops on it or whatever, but I think the land is way more valuable in Costa Rica um, to have tourists coming year after year um, than it is to, say, have a, have a banana plantation. I mean, you need a mix of, of things, but um, I think it is paying dividends. So Costa Rica is, is leading the way in that respect. Um, lots of countries are doing lots of great things. I think... We're just not doing enough and we're not doing it fast enough. Mm. Um, I mean, it's amazing, you know, you're in the travel industry and I'm sure a large portion of um, people who travel want to go and see palm trees on pristine beaches or go and see elephants in the savannah or lions hunting or whatever. It's amazing the draw that wildlife and those wild places have. And I think even on a small scale at home, um, 
I can't remember who I was talking to last year, but I was saying, isn't it amazing that people in their offices in London in the summer, you know, they've got their sandwiches for lunch. So rather than sit at their desk, they'll take their sandwiches and just go and sit in the park for half an hour, an hour and go and lie on the grass in the sun. So people naturally gravitate towards these, towards nature and greenery and open space and big Mm -hmm. skies. And um, I think we all have an innate connection to the natural world. We all want to visit those wild spaces. We all want to see pristine habitats. You know, you're not never going to go and want to see, um, I don't know, a rubbish tip or something. (laughs) You know, it's not going to be a relaxing place to go and sit. Um, So I think as countries that, you know, I think a lot of countries recognise there is value, uh, financial value, because obviously a lot, of the t- a lot of the time it comes down to money. But there is a financial value in having these wild spaces and wild animals, uh, you know, native animals um, that people want to see. I couldn't recommend more to tune into A Life on Our Planet on Netflix um, with David Attenborough and with Gavin as the Director of Photography a must watch for for everyone interested in the future of our planet really. No, well thank you very yeah thank you for that plug and I, I would say the nice thing is it's it's basically it's David Attenborough's witnessed 94 years on this planet. So he's you know he's seen firsthand how it was when he first started traveling how humans have basically screwed it up. Um but also we have humans are ingenious. We have all the solutions. We have all the ways of fixing it. Um and so that film, although in the middle maybe it's a bit depressing, it does give it gives me hope mm. that we can actually, you know, mend the errors of our ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. So moving on to chapter five, that is your hidden gem. Can you tell me a bit about a place that you've been to that many of our listeners might not have discovered yet or have heard of? Again, I it, I kind of feel slightly guilty encouraging, you know, painting this picture somewhere and in trying to encourage people to go and travel to it because, you know, well, the they're more not we travel, able to travel there now anyway. <laughs> no, so they're no, traveling so with their the armchairs. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but a place I've been to a few, been lucky to travel to a few times is Antarctica. Oh, wow. Um, it's the most beautiful, pristine uh, habitat. It's massive. Um, again, obviously, I didn't pay attention at school because I remember at school them saying, oh, you know, Antarctica is a continent and the North Pole is frozen ocean. Uh, but it was only when I went to there, I think in my early 30s or mid 30s, that I actually I put two and two together and realised, oh, yes, Antarctica is mountains and rocks and all the rest of it. And the North Pole is literally just a frozen layer of ice on the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, the nice thing about Antarctica is it's not built up. Man hasn't yet trashed it. I mean, there are, um, I think, pretty much every nation is represented there with uh, research stations. Yeah. But these are tiny little dots on a massive continent. Um, But as a continent, it's just beautiful. It's pristine, uh, clean white lines. Um, It's like a, it it is like a different planet, really. Um, So I've been there a few times and you obviously... You've got loads of life around the ribbon edge of, of Antarctica. So, you know, you've got all those penguin and seal colonies and so on and whales visiting and things. But as soon as you go inland, you know, just a few miles, it is completely barren. Yeah. And then there's nothing all the way to the South Pole. You know, you, um, I suppose the nearest from the coast to the South Pole is about 800 miles, I think. Um, but in that interior, there's nothing living. There's nothing at all. And there's something quite... I know there's something quite nice about that, that you've got these huge areas of land where, well, nothing can live. Um, So it's almost like Earth's got its own little area, which is fenced off that man can't go and trash, hopefully. Uh, I say as long as we continue to have the Antarctic Treaty and, 
you know, everybody doesn't rush down there and start mining for minerals and things. Um, it probably will be one of the last places, wild, truly wild places on Earth. Um, but it's it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful place to see. I imagine it's so peaceful. <laughs> it's yeah, it is. Once you're, I think it's very different because probably most people who would visit would have to travel down on a ship, um, yeah. on a cruise ship or something. So you've always got the you know, you're always with other people and you've always got the noise of that. Admittedly, you can do these shore trips um, where you get closer and you'll, you know, the sound of a distant ship might be drowned out by the sound of penguins and birds and things. Mm. Um, so you can experience that that wildness when you get ashore. Um, but yeah, there's something beautiful about the, just hearing the sound of wind through ice and rocks and things. So in contrast, chapter six is your worst travel experience what would what 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 do you remember th- for the wrong reasons potentially it's funny because looking back now i look back very fondly but at the time it was hell on earth and that was when i worked on a series called realms of the russian bear and i traveled to, traveled to then what was the soviet union that was before glasnost so this was oh god um 91 1990 something like that yeah and the soviet union was not necessarily a great place to to travel to back then you know it was um there was very little food. It was difficult to get hold of fresh food. We were staying, it was right down on the Afghan-Iranian border where we were, which is now Turkmenistan, which I've oh. been back to since and is an amazing country to visit. Really? Um, it, uh, yes, it's still under a dictatorship uh, of sorts and the, the people are persecuted. Let's not get too political, but it's it's not a great place to live necessarily, but it's a great country that's got, you know, a lot going for it. Um, um so I went there back in the early 90s um, and we went right down onto the Afghan-Iranian border to um, a small reserve called Badkiz. And there they've got all sorts of things. They've got, you know, leopard and steppe cat and kulan and, you know, antelope. And uh, historically they would have had cheetahs there. Um, it's a really rugged landscape. It gets super, super hot in the uh, in the summer. So I think we rec- it's the hottest place I've been on the planet. Really? Um, wow. We got yeah. I mean, it, there are hotter places, but I think we had temperatures of up to uh, fifty four degrees centigrade. Oh, uh, which God. if you're camping. I mean, if you think Glastonbury's bad and you wake up with a hangover <laughs> at 30 degrees, try it at 54 degrees. It's um, it's dangerously hot. So my memories of that, uh, my first trip there was actually at the end of the winter, early spring. And because it's desert, I assumed it was going to be shorts and T-shirt. Um, but I was very, very wrong. Uh, we got there, it was snow on the ground, it was minus six. We had to draw water from the well. The well was frozen. We'd have to put a rock in the the bucket, metal bucket and drop it to try and break the ice every morning to get water. Oh. It was bloody freezing cold at night. I had an adequate sleeping bag from Millets rather than some proper expedition thing. So I do, and I remember being ill and it was a long drop toilet. So, you know, every time you needed to go to the toilet, you know, you'd have to run out in the freezing cold and go and squat over a hole in a few planks. Um, you know, which was opened on one side and the villagers would just come and stare at you when you're squatting on the toilet and things. Now, I've got, um, at the time, it was absolute hell. But looking back, it was um, probably all part of growing up and being British and being an intrepid explorer and cameraman. But um, yeah, so at the time it wasn't great. But it, as I say, I went back about seven years ago and it's, I remembered all the best things about it too. Uh, the, the kindness of the people there, the generosity, um, the amazing landscapes. Yeah, it's quite an interesting country to visit. Hmm. Well, we're now on to the final chapter, chapter seven of your travel diaries. The top of your travel wish list. Are there, is there a place left that you've not visited that you'd love to go to? Well, again, I'm 
perhaps I'm alone in this. I've never had a bucket list. Everywhere I've been fortunate to travel for work, I've always seen amazing things. Um, and actually, I think probably as I get older and wiser and more boring, I don't know, I think I'd like to see more of our own country. I'd, you know, mm-hmm. England is, of all the countries I've visited, you know, people say to me, oh, where would you like to live? You know, and every time I've thought about it, and yes, you go to the tropics and you go to the Seychelles or um, New Zealand or wherever it might be, and you see these amazing things and palm trees and beautiful weather. I've always enjoyed coming home to England. Um, it's where my family is. It's where my roots are. And I think we live in the best country in the world. Um, mm. Maybe not politically at the moment, but um, yeah. we live in the best country in the world in terms of a place to live. You know, we have amazing, we have four seasons. We have, you know, we just had snow in our garden three days ago. You can travel to the north and you can climb mountains. Um, you can go down to our you know, English Riviera to Torquay and that, you know, Devon coastline and you can get sandy beaches and warm seas to swim in in the summer. You can go for lovely country walks. You know, just five miles out of Bristol, I could probably choose somewhere and go for a walk today and not see anybody for half an hour, an hour. Yeah. Um, We forget how amazing this country is and I don't think I've really seen enough of it. You know, we've got some amazing wildlife. Uh, yeah. if you, I don't know if you watch Spring Watch and Autumn Watch every year. You know, they keep that I love it. series runs and runs and runs. And, you know, there's amazing stuff. Really. Yeah. We've got so many hidden gems in England. Yeah. Um, and so much yet to be discovered. So for me, England is the hidden gem on this planet. And, you know, I'm going to enjoy exploring more and more of it. And maybe as COVID, if COVID continues, um, that'll give me the excuse to get on and do it. I love that answer because this summer I spent time, instead of travelling abroad as I was planning to, I spent time instead discovering what was here on my doorstep, travelling around the southwest of England. And it couldn't have been more wonderful. And as you say, I I hope that we'll start to appreciate even more what, what we have just a few hours driveway or even you know a few hours walk away a walk away yeah. yeah yeah absolutely no i'm glad to hear that you you share that um that sentiment well thank you gavin it has been such a pleasure those were your incredible travel diaries um thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today it's been great talking to you thank you Oh, that was a fantastic Gavin Thurston. Gavin's book, Journeys in the Wild, The Secret Life of a Cameraman, is out now. And not only is it a beautiful book to look at, it is just full of even more fabulous stories, which David Attenborough himself describes in the foreword as the written version of the visual making of. You can follow all of his adventures on Instagram at the Gavin Thurston. If you've enjoyed this episode today, then don't forget to subscribe and leaving a review or rating really helps others to discover the podcast. To find out who's joining me next week, come and follow me on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein. I'd love to hear from you. And if you can't wait until then, there's always the first three seasons to catch up on from Michael Palin to Rick Stein and Serrano Fines to Simon Reeve. Thank you so much for listening and I'll be back next week. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. 
It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos visiting some places that have been on my bucket list and while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.